Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Design, Deploy, and Optimize Microsoft SharePoint on AWS session. Very happy to have you here with us. My name is Lou Delatore. I'm a solutions architect with AWS. I've been with AWS now for about two years, and I have over uh, two decades experience working with systems architecture, cloud architecture, uh, contingency planning, compliance management, systems management, of course, uh, Microsoft workloads. Um, with me, I have Zlatan Zinnik, and he'll introduce himself. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Zlatan. Uh, I'm a uh, senior, senior architect for uh, professional services, uh, AWS team, and uh, uh, I actually, this is literally a fourth continent that I live and work on. Um, I've, uh, I have more than 20 years experience in the industry. I've been uh, uh, Microsoft's most, most valuable professional for SharePoint for many years, and uh, I've gone th through the Microsoft Certified Master Certification and training um, in the past, uh, while it was still around. Um, I've, um, I have very, very deep and uh, extensive SharePoint experience, and uh, I'd love to talk to you about uh, running SharePoint on AWS today. But uh, Lou is going to start off first, so go ahead, Lou. Great. Thank you, Slatin. So... Um, Today we're going to talk about, uh, as Slatt mentioned, everything on SharePoint on AWS. And we're going to start off with the fundamentals, uh, talking about initially EC2 networking, uh, Active Directory, remote access, and purchasing options for your SharePoint environments on AWS. Um, we're not going to go deep into each of those because there's other sessions that cover that. Um, but it's important to, to understand those fundamentals if, if you're new to AWS and it's going to be your first experience deploying SharePoint on AWS. Um, so once we get through the fundamentals, Slotin will take over and cover the architectural scenarios. Um, so marketplace builds that are available for SharePoint, uh, hybrid configurations for SharePoint, uh, multi-AZ SharePoint deployments, also talk a little bit about SharePoint 2016 on AWS and um, some DevOps using some tools that we have that can help uh, speed up the deployment of SharePoint on AWS using our quick start. And then finally, we'll cover some best practices for SharePoint on AWS from EC2 uh, best practices to SQL best practices, talk about migration best practices, and then some additional things you may want to consider um, taken advantage of as you deploy SharePoint on AWS because now you're going to have a plethora of, of services and, that are going to be available to you within uh, the AWS cloud platform that you may want to take advantage of. So some things to think about there. But let's uh, first get started with the fundamentals uh, with regards to VPC patterns that we see commonly deployed on AWS. Typically, you'll see any one of these four uh, VPC patterns, starting with an internal-only VPC pattern where you might have a VPC with private subnets that have uh, connectivity back to an on-premises data center for internal-only communication, and that, that's something that would only be accessible internally, uh, such as uh, you know, your on-prem network with your VPC resources and your SharePoint environment would be an internal-only type setup. So that's one example. Another is uh, internet-accessible VPC, where in this case, 
It, uh, it's isolated perhaps from your internal on-premises network or maybe it's an all-in solution where you only have a VPC in the cloud with public subnets and an internet gateway that provides you access to the internet uh, for those instances. So that uh, may be used, uh, for example, for test, uh, R&D, or maybe as a, an environment to demonstrate uh, a sales demo tool, for example. Uh, other customers may use it for production. It may just be something that they provide access to uh, externally for whatever uh, business requirements they may have. And then in the third scenario, you see that we have a public and privately routed uh, VPC. And here um, you have, again, private and public subnets. And the public subnets, again, have access to external uh, or to the Internet via the Internet gateway, whereas your private resources have internal-only communications within the private subnets. They would not have uh, an, a route, for example, to the Internet gateway that would give them access or uh, accessibility to resources in the Internet. There's some other ways of accomplishing that we'll talk about uh, shortly as far as providing internal private resources access to public resources in a secure fashion. But in this scenario, uh, you, would, you would isolate that communication and keep them separate. And then finally, we have the on-premises and inter internet accessible VPC. So it's a combination of uh, these other patterns. This is one of the more commonly used uh, VPC patterns where uh, you have public subnets with an internet gateway that gives them access to uh, internet services and resources. You may have private subnets that are connected to your on-premises a data center um, via VPN connection or direct connect for internal communications and internal access. And this is typically used um, to provide both the ability to communicate externally as well as ex internally and be able to isolate that communication between the two types of, uh, of access and whatever may be, again, required for those particular uh, resources. So these are some common uh, patterns talk about now a little bit um, about external connectivity that uh, you can provide to your resources when it comes to the resources in your VPC. As we talked about briefly in the previous slide, you have an internet gateway that allows those internal resources to have access to the internet or uh, other AWS services. And this is a highly available VPC component uh, that provides that communication for your resources in the, in the VPC. Um, so that spans uh, multiple uh, availability zones. Uh, you don't have to worry about it being a single point of failure. Uh, then you have uh, the NAT gateway. And uh, for those resources that reside within a private subnet, um, they normally cannot access the internet or access other AWS services within a private subnet. So to provide that type of connectivity and still keep it secure in a private subnet, you leverage the NAT gateway. And the NAT gateway, again, is a highly available uh, VPC uh, component, but one, one um, difference to take note of with the NAT gateway is whereas the internet gateway spans multiple availability zones, the NAT gateway is highly available, but within that availability zone. So for your applications that you're, you're building in a highly available fashion, you wanna make sure that you deploy a NAT gateway in each of the availability zones that your application uh, is being deployed in, and in this case, you know, SharePoint, for example. 
Then we uh, also have uh, VPN connectivity that we offer to our customers so that they can connect uh, their on-premises data centers to the VPC resources. You can do that uh, by leveraging the virtual private gateway and deploying a VPN or leveraging Direct Connect, which is our high-throughput uh, fiber service that you can cross over directly into uh, one of our regions from your data center and have high-throughput connectivity between your on-premises data center and AWS. Um, you also might notice there on, on the slide, there are two VPN that are being um, displayed there. One of them is leveraging the virtual private gateway. That's typically what most customers do when they're connecting their, their on-premises VPNs uh, or establishing a VPN with their on-premises data center. But um, others may leverage partner solutions uh, and you can deploy VPNs on instances within AWS and connect that back to your on-premises data center as well. So that's another option and that's what you see there as far as the second uh, VPN example that's being uh, displayed there. Now with regards to Active Directory and SharePoint, you have many different uh, options to choose from. Um, you can extend your existing on-premises Active Directory uh, environment into AWS by again establishing uh, external connectivity by placing a VPN or a direct connect between your on-premises data center and AWS and then deploying an EC2 instance in the VPC, uh, deploying Windows Server on it, enabling it as a domain controller and just essentially extending your Active Directory into AWS uh, and making AWS another site within your Active Directory. Or you can uh, leverage our AWS directory service. We have a Microsoft managed Active Directory service that we make available to our customers that they can use within AWS. And that would be its own forest within AWS, but we would manage the underlying instances, the operating system, the patch management for those uh, domain controllers, and you would just um, be concerned with managing your Active Directory environment and still having access to the feature-rich um, capabilities that an enterprise Microsoft Active Directory environment can provide to you, but in a managed service scenario. Um, and in this case, you would set up a directory trust if you needed to provide connectivity between your on-premises Active Directory and the AWS directory service by creating a forest trust, for example, between, um, between your on-premises data center and the uh, service within AWS. In the other example, we see federated trust, so that's also an option, and this uh, requires, you know, uh, deploying an ADFS environment uh, for you to set up federation or leveraging a SAML-compliant uh, solution that provides that federation for you between your on-premises environment and uh, AWS. Now, with regards to remote access, you want to be able to manage your environment when you deploy SharePoint on AWS. So what's the best way to do that? So one thing we recommend is to take advantage of the quick start that we've created for remote desktop, desktop gateway. Um, it deploys a remote desktop gateway environment for you in a public subnet that provides secure connectivity to your internal resources within AWS. So now you're not opening up um, holes unnecessarily 
um, or um, you know, providing more access than what's needed to your environment from whether it's on-prem in your, in your own data center or whether it's external access via the internet, you're securing that access to those resources so that you can manage and administer those internal resources within AWS. And as I mentioned, we do have a quick start and um, Slatin will talk about that a little bit later as far as the quick starts are concerned, but um, they automate the deployment of, of uh, resources and applications within AWS for you, so definitely take advantage of those. We have them for SharePoint as well. Now, one of the last things we'll talk about in the fundamental section is purchasing options. So there are many options for you as a, a customer that uh, leverages Microsoft that you can take advantage of within AWS. Um, you can buy licenses from AWS, of course, by going with the license included option. So that would be uh, license included options and in our Windows AMIs, uh, as well as our SQL Server. Um, AMIs with Windows, and you basically pay for what you use. There's no upfront costs or long-term investments in licensing that you have to make when you go with that option. But if you've already made an investment in, in licenses and you own uh, quite a few Microsoft licenses and you want to take advantage of those, then you have the option as well to bring your own licenses to AWS and just extend the life cycle of your software without actually uh, um, taken on any additional costs there with regards to the licenses. So we won't go deep into the licensing. There's, a, you know, there's quite a bit to learn about uh, bringing your own licenses to AWS, but we've had uh, other sessions on that that I would encourage you to, to look at. We've got some references at the end of this deck. Um, and then, of course, uh, you have access to, you'll have access to all the sessions and would encourage you to take a look at that as well. But simply put, we have many options for you as far as licensing is concerned within AWS for Microsoft workloads. And then the last thing I'll mention is with regards to the marketplace, um, over 2,300 uh, products are available, one-click deployments um, for solutions, um, Microsoft workloads on AWS, including uh, several SharePoint 2013 and 2016 builds that range from single server environments to multiple server environments for you to, to choose from. So I would encourage you to take a look at the marketplace as well. So with that, I'll turn it over to Slotin and he'll cover the architectural scenarios. Well, thank you very much, Lou. Uh, so let's dive into the architectural scenarios. So one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about is um, effectively the marketplace offering. Uh, what's great about marketplace offering and how it ties into the whole licensing um, you know, talk that now uh, that, that, that uh, Lou gave you. Uh, specifically, uh, when it comes to like, um, you know, with, with respect to your, let's say, enterprise agreements and licensing that you've purchased, uh, one thing that you don't have flexibility on um, um, with a lot of platforms is ability to actually rent a license in addition to renting, you know, the, um, the infrastructure behind it and, and running it uh, together. And this is what Marketplace is really great for, is that you don't, you don't have to, if, if your need um, uh, for using SharePoint servers or for developing on them or for specific projects increases during the course of the year, it doesn't really mean that you need to, you know, go ahead and uh, pre-purchase additional licensing um, at your respective true-ups. Um, it means um, that you can effectively just rent it, use it for as much as you need to use it, 
and um, you know, and then basically shut it down, and you don't have to you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to pay extra or anything like that. Um, so it, it turns out like quite a big deal, quite a good deal on that side. There are several partners uh, that that uh, do offer. Um, we even have an AMI with like I think it's only. Uh, uh, the, the, the SharePoint Foundation earlier, one of the earlier versions, uh, I believe it's 2010. However, you do have SharePoint 2016 uh, off, offered by Cognosis with a one-click uh, uh, deployment. You have uh, data resolution, has SharePoint uh, uh, 2013. Uh, Cognosis also has 2013, 2010 flavors. Um, and um, it gives you the ability to go ahead and uh, um, deploy basically um, you know, complete, uh, fairly simplified workloads. You can, as you can see, you, you will have everything from Active Directory, SQL Server 2014, and, uh, and SharePoint 2016. Um, you can go ahead, uh, you know, use it to, you know, either kick the tires or, uh, or rather, you can do that with quick starts as well, and I'll kind of um, get onto that as well. Uh, but in this particular case, you can use it for development. Uh, you can use it for some temporary um, proof of, proofs of concept um, um, or, you know, any other testing or anything that you need to do, and, uh, and you don't have additional licensing to use it for. Um, so um, there's also several um, options uh, for disaster recovery, and um, disaster recovery uh, is, uh, is another um, aspect and another very common scenario for running SharePoint, uh, SharePoint workloads in AWS. Um, so uh, where, where the, where the, that's kind of usually the first also option um, um, for a lot of um, uh, customers that are just migrating into um, AWS and shifting all of their workloads over there. Um, and um, because it, it actually helps you with both. It helps you uh, with your migration scenario. It also provides you with a, um, uh, with a DR scenario in case you need to effectively fail over. Um, and it saves you, you know, the, whatever DR uh, solution you may be or may not be using at that point. So the common scenarios are um, um, depending on your RPO and RTO. If it's fairly... Um, Flexible, the backup and restore scenarios are there. Um, um, something in between would be pilot light, uh, and we'll cover those in more detail. And then there's also warm site. Um, you do have also a, you know, a hot site, a hot standby, uh, where, you know, it's probably the, by far the most expensive option that you would have. And that's probably in a case when you're doing an actual full migration or something like that, that you would actually stand up a full hot site, which is, means the equivalent farm that you would be running on-premise. You actually go ahead and deploy uh, in AWS, and then um, you know, just cut over to that farm instead uh, um, uh, on, on, on the AWS side, and that way perhaps migrate, or just use it um, as a really expensive DR scenario, <laughs> you know, so quite honestly. Um, so, uh, backup, scenario, backup and restore scenario, uh, we do have a, um, a storage appliance called, uh, uh, called AWS uh, uh, Storage Gateways that, that, that actually allow you to, um, um, you know, backup uh, specifically um, uh, SharePoint and um, respective databases and then uh, go ahead and replicate those over um, to S3 uh, in AWS. And then um, you, you, we, we would, you would be able to effectively um, 
automate um, then deployment of the farm uh, in AWS side via um, uh, CloudFormation, and I will talk to you more about CloudFormation a little bit later. Um, and uh, CloudFormation would build out, which is basically our infrastructure as a code, it would build out your entire infrastructure and it would automate, uh, um, or we, as part of it, we can automate uh, the restoring of these uh, specific backups as well as uh, um, uh, connecting to the same and getting the uh, farm back up and running. Um, and this is, you know, some people wouldn't call this a DR scenario, but a lot of people do call it in a sense that they go like, hey, I have fully DevOps optimized, uh, fully automated deployment of my full production environment in AWS. I don't want to run anything on it, so I don't want to spend a dime on AWS in case I need it. And by the way, I can afford for my, um, uh, you know, for, for a downtime to be a couple of hours. And remember, downtime is also a matter of perception because downtime may be, uh, uh, or no downtime may be a fact that you can just switch over your databases to read-only you know, while you're effectively doing this, and then while you're actually failing over to uh, AWS, they could be still using uh, SharePoint in read-only mode, and then once you cut over, then they can continue using it the way they did before. Pilot uh, light. Pilot light um, refers to um, running the lowest common denominator as far as your farm is concerned. Um, so that would effectively mean that um, you do use something like transactional log shipping, or you could be using, you know, earlier mirroring, uh, or you could be using asynchronous, uh, um, always on availability group that goes in the, you know, um, and, and replicates the data um, over to AWS. And then you would have the, the absolute minimum of like, let's say, uh, web front end and application uh, server. So uh, a simple two server farm uh, that will, you know, allow you to go ahead and quickly spin up um, in an automated fashion, additional servers to then um, uh, withstand any workload or anything like that. What this allows you to do is that it clearly speeds up the time of deployment, you know, considerably because you have already a, uh, you know, a running SQL server, a running, uh, you know, application server, running web server, and, um, you know, so you, you have some time in, in leeway to actually go ahead and increase that, and they can already, even in that state, uh, you can uh, accept some traffic and um, uh, serve some of that content and, uh, and some of those transactions. Um, the warm side scenario uh, would effectively be that um, uh, you don't have something like an automatic, you know, that's the kind of difference between the whole warm side and hot standby. You don't have any automatic failover. You would also use something like always on availability groups. You would use, you would be um, uh, replicating the data over, but you would have pretty much more or less, um, you know, uh, a base setup of, of, of a full farm, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, in, instead of just like a single uh, WFE and single app server, you would have at least redundant app servers and redundant um, WFEs. That can grow into uh, any additional capacity that you need to add. Um, as well, so you don't have to, once again, have exact replica of what you're running um, on-premise, but you could kind of go up to that, but that would mean that these things are kind of running live, and then you would manually kind of fail over uh, once you um, once you're satisfied with, you know, with the whole thing, once, once, whether it's needed or whether it's, uh, it needs to be automated in some way. Obviously, 
when I say manual fa failover, I'm kind of really referring to automating that event, whether it's on purpose or whether it's uh, triggered by some specific action. So, now we talked about the DR scenario, so let's talk about um, the, the, the actual typical topology of SharePoint Server and the typical uh, deployment of the on-premise SharePoint Server. So how many of you are running SharePoint Server here? Oh, yeah? Cool. Um, how many of you are running it on-premise? Everybody. Okay, all the same. <laughs> so this is going to be good. <laughs> so... Um, uh, depending on the type of, um, you know, SharePoint server you have running, obviously the, the, the topology and everything differs. I would argue that there's not so much difference, difference between 2013 and 2016. Um, and um, uh, there are some services and improvements that have been introduced. Um, uh, one specific one specifically, uh, you know, with Mineral, uh, we'll be discussing that more. Um, so for the most part... Um, you have, um, uh, speaking out of experience, and this is coming out of the trenches specifically, um, a, lot of, a lot of our customers, if they, once they're running SharePoint um, on-premise, they would have uh, things like, um, uh, they would either not have a DR, <laughs> they, would have, um, uh, they would have a DR that um, they don't quite test out. So, um, so the whole thing, the whole DR would be kind of either kind of backup and restore scenario or it would be something more similar to a pilot light type scenario um, where it's running over mostly based on um, uh, log shipping um, over to a, a, a DR uh, site with some level of automation to bring it back up. Um, then uh, some customers would, would be running things like a, um, if they have uh, high bandwidth and they have colo centers and all this sort of stuff, they would be running a stretch farm and things like that. Those are fairly accept, uh, exceptional and uh, expensive scenarios as well uh, in that sense. So there's, there's extremes in both sides and there's a lot of, a lot of things in the middle um, when it comes to that. Um, in almost what, the only thing that is in common with all these scenarios that I've seen so far is when I ask them, okay, so how often do you test your DR? <laughs> they go like, Never. <laughs> and I'm like, well, why don't you test it? Because we don't want to break it. <laughs> so how do you not don't know that it's already broken, right? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, so one of the things that we, uh, we, uh, we strongly encourage uh, when we work with our customers and all that, we implement a scenario uh, for testing specifically uh, uh, the DR scenarios that we have running over there or that they already have running. Um, some of you guys of you uh, is, have probably heard um, uh, some of our um, amazing, uh, amazing customers and partners and uh, have developed these um, um, uh, scenarios such as Chaos Monkey developed by Netflix in col collaboration with us and the Simeon Army and Chaos Gorilla and all that, so in the Janitor Monkey and all those. Th those are really great. So um, who knows what uh, Chaos Mark Monkey does? It will, go ahead. Yeah, it will at random kill servers and test out your DR scenario, right? And then depending on kind of what, you, what type of setup you have, you'll you use different types of monkeys uh, to, to kill, whether it's uh, multiple regions to kill re regions at random, uh, to kill uh, availability zones at random, and all that sort of stuff. And then you would get results um, of, of that. And those, CR, you know, um, uh, more, like I said, all the customers we work with, 
um, uh, have are running those scenarios regularly, and, and they are forever checking and uh, failing over their production, uh, making sure that it runs. Something I strongly encourage you guys to do as well and consider doing. Um, for the most part, uh, when it comes to actually deploying and uh, moving workloads uh, to AWS, uh, specifically, uh, one of the things that is, uh, that is really uh, you know, important to consider is the way we work with our multi-AZ environments, uh, uh, specifically regions and environments. W one thing that make, makes us considerably different uh, than the, uh, the, the rest of the cloud providers and all that is the fact that uh, we do not consider that full tolerance within the same rack amounts to a availability zone. That doesn't make any sense, right? If electricity goes out, you know, everything's going down. What we consider availability zone to be is a cluster of data centers that is um, uh, more than 50 miles away from each other uh, that effectively has, um, uh, it's, it's in a different fault plane, it's in a different flood plane, it's, it, it, there's no natural other disaster that should be able to uh, take out more than one um, uh, availability zone. As such, these are even for the, for the richest of our customers, right? This actually constitutes very much a DR scenario. Doing a multi-AZ deployment of SharePoint between two AZs is pretty much having just out of the box straight away DR setup of SharePoint, quite honestly, okay? So um, prov provided you, you obviously do not, uh, uh, do not introduce... Uh, um, uh, you know, any, um, you know, uh, I would say cowboy scenarios of like deploying updates and things like that to your servers without, uh, you know, a controlled and governed way of doing so, um, you actually at no risk of, uh, you know, losing availability as such, right? Um, in a lot of the cases, if you were to say, let's say, apply patching or something like that, you would perhaps consider uh, doing something similar to blue-green deployments where you go ahead and bring up an, the same farm on the other side, and then you go ahead and you update the patches or whatever the case is, and then you shift over between the farms. You don't need to do that, essentially, and I'll discuss that a little bit later because uh, SharePoint supports rolling updates, specifically SharePoint 2016, so we'll discuss that. Uh, so, um, yeah, so yeah, this is the AWS multi-AZ design patterns. Like I said, um, we have fiber optic low latency links. So although it appears, like I said, that they're very closely together, and when you uh, create separate subnets that, uh, that have the, the redundant workloads on all that side, you're effectively providing um, an extremely, extremely performant um, a stretch farm to an extent, right, between the, that is fully available and that, um, that can constitute uh, a better solution than um, a uh, full uh, disaster recovery solution with the production farm that you've had previously. Um, so first I'm going to go over the 2013, the multi-AZ. So this is what it looks like. Um, if you go to, if you right now search for AWS Quick Start, you're going to get a whole bunch of um, uh, basically architectures that we've developed, and all you really need to do, and I'll kind of take you through how to go ahead and deploy those, um, but um, this is the type of architecture that they deploy, right? Uh, and, um, and this is kind of a, a normal type of architecture for our customers that want to uh, go ahead and just 
extend or, or migrate SharePoint workloads into AWS uh, when I have them running or several other workloads or something like that. So um, you would first of all have um, the uh, RD, RD gateways, uh, uh, remote desktop gateways that are set up. Those effectively work. Uh, they're, they're redundant and they um, allow you to do RDP over HTTPS and they allow you to effectively go ahead, uh, uh, they act as a bastion server. So they, they allow you to uh, administer and access all the servers that you have uh, in all the other subnets. Um, and uh, you have the uh, VPC net gateway, uh, as Lou has mentioned early on, uh, that is effectively used for network translation, uh, allowing um, secure servers that are not exposed to the internet, but they're internal in private subnets, it allows them to pull updates via the internet without exposing them to the internet, right? So it allows you to securely pull updates from the internet for that. And, uh, <clears throat> and before I actually go on that, um, uh, more, most importantly, you need to drop uh, DC servers, redundant, uh, redundant ADs. Um, mostly, as most of you know, this is kind of a, a requirement uh, for just about any cloud solution or anything. The, uh, enterprise workloads like SharePoint are very chatty, and as such, they need to have, they need to be in close proximity to um, uh, DC servers. So, um, as such, um, that, that's, a, that's a base requirement. Another thing to consider is that you could be running the, our managed Active Directory, which is part of the AWS Directory services, um, and that way you don't have to worry about it. We uh, effectively manage that bit. You define how, how you want it deployed, um, you know, redundancy behind it and all that. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, and, and the, the only thing that is different is if you uh, start migrating more of your infrastructure over uh, to AWS, what you're going to have is um, uh, you would need to kind of put AD and any central services that you're using in kind of a central, um, uh, central VPC, so to speak. And we call that a hub-and-spoke model, uh, so where you would create a hub, because now each of the VPCs are in each of the other solutions, so you could be deploying uh, Exchange uh, in a different VPC, in a different network. You could be uh, deploying um, um, Skype for Business. You could be deploying Dynamics AX and all that, and different teams could be working on it. They could be even different accounts or anything. You would effectively have um, your VPN or your Direct Connect uh, from your data center uh, configured with the central or the hub uh, VPC that is running AD and all the other central services, and then you would have v, uh, VPC peering to all the other VPCs that it's using. So that's just the difference in that sense. Uh, this is your typical deployment uh, uh, for SharePoint 2013. You have, um, and this has been in, in, in 2010 in a sense and all that, you have web frontends uh, that are redundant, you, they are load balanced. In this particular case, very important to note, as you can see, uh, um, uh, what, what we commonly use is AWS ELB. It is a, um, uh, an industry standard um, uh, load balancer um, that is a great addition and can be worked with, uh, uh, can be used in, in addition to autoscaler for bringing up additional instances where and how necessary. Um, however, um, what's important to note is that ELB uh, does not um, support NTLM for load balancing because it's, it's a fairly archaic um, um, you know, authentication method. What it does support, you need to make sure, and what, what in, in fact even the later versions of SharePoint kind of force you to use is, um, uh, is claims-based authentication, 
or uh, Kerberos, if you prefer it. I like Kerberos, very easy to set up. Some people are really scared because they, you know, <laughs> when it breaks, they don't know how to fix it. Uh, but uh, either of the two, you need to set up that delegation um, if you were to use AWS CLB. If you're not going to use it, you will need to use an appliance like, a, you know, um, F5 or Netscaler. Uh, you do have those available in, and many, many, many others, right? You have those available in our marketplace, and you can just, uh, you know, get to use those in whatever the case is. So that's totally up to you. Um, so, yeah, this would be a um, um, traditional kind of two data sets of pattern. This is probably the most common one uh, that I've seen uh, being used. Um, you can actually also have that uh, running uh, where you, you can have the, the actual uh, DR set up uh, in, um, in another region. Uh, so as I said earlier, from, for a DR perspective, probably I, I would struggle to justify, uh, because of the way our availability zones work, I would struggle to justify why you need to have this running in another region, right? But um, what, it, what it does give you for a lot of our customers, and I'll, um, if you come to my session as well tomorrow, it's uh, WIN two, uh, 403. Um, uh, it's, it's a great way of also migrating in case you need to migrate to multiple regions. So you want to kind of lower the latency um, of, um, uh, you know, people accessing uh, uh, SharePoint for your organization that is kind of deployed across the globe. So um, it's a great way to bring it up and create um, additional, call it DR farms, in other regions and then fail over to them or just, you know, disconnect them and then, um, uh, um, uh, you know, get, get those uh, uh, specific regions to use them. Um, that involves setting up a VPN. It's a fairly fast VPN. I'll be doing a demo of that tomorrow. Come check it out. Uh, and uh, the, the scenario is going to be basically uh, SQL-based. I'll be showing you how that, uh, you know, the, the actual asynchronous uh, replication works with the uh, always-on availability groups. They'll be all part of the same um, uh, WSFC. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so the VPN um, that we commonly use instead, we use just OpenVPN, and it's kind of set up between one region to another because you can't VPC peer between regions, right? You don't have transitive routing on that, on that level or any. Uh, great. So 2016. So how many of you are running 2016? Nobody. One, no, no, no. One, two. Okay, good stuff. So I'm going to be talking about Mineral because I'd like you to use Mineral and you should be using Mineral. Uh, you guys know what Mineral is? Okay. So a lo whole lot of people were... Um, um, we're really confused as kind of all the services uh, and um, all the offerings grew with SharePoint for a long time. So I, I've been I've been around as you know since uh, 2001 when SharePoint 2001 came up and you know content management server and all this sort of stuff afterwards and all this um, you know to 2003 to uh, you know 2007 and so on and so on um, and um, and. You know, these specific, I mean, how it grew was enormous, right? And the amount of services that, 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 that it could take and that, that, that it had, uh, capabilities, features that were added to it, uh, just those, those were, they were literally leapfrogging from one, um, 
from one version to another where you were effectively dealing with a totally different solution with a totally different product altogether. Um, and as such, it became also more and more complicated. Uh, one of the biggest things that, uh, one of the complaints from the, you know, from the customers to Microsoft, uh, uh, you know, in, in generally from the community and the industry was um, when it comes to actually deploying a farm, there was just too much that you had to consider around which service is going to go where. where. They did an amazing thing when they deployed SharePoint 2010. Uh, they did the, uh, the, the SharePoint service architecture, which actually allowed you to create individual services that will self-load balancing, which was amazing. And then, uh, you know, you, could, you, you would then decide, depending on which service does what, so you, that you don't have like a... Um, disproportionate kind of uh, resource utilization, you would split that up in different uh, server roles. You know, you call them server roles or whatever the case is. So, I don't know. Um, you would split up search servers different from all the BI services. You would uh, split up the, the, the indexer on the search side and you would define how that's going to be available and how that's, you know, how that is going to utilize the resources and monitoring and all that. That unfortunately was fairly complicated for a lot of the customers. Um, they would have to uh, hire uh, very expensive people like myself to go there and tell them the stuff and all that. So Microsoft um, simplified it a lot uh, by introducing minerals. And what minerals do is that they predefine the role of a server. Um, another great thing that the minerals do is that um, they make sure only that those services that are meant to run on that server are running on that server, so it's kind of work. It's kind of going to work like a like a desired state configuration type thing, where you're going to have actually a job that is periodically running on individual mineral servers, and it's going to make sure that uh, first of all those servers are up and running, and that nobody has introduced some other service, and it would if if it does find that service, it would kill it, right? And that's very important to note because in case you have some uh, specific customizations and stuff that you've introduced, you've got to take that into account. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> the mineral might kill it. Uh, so, uh, so that's very important to note. Um, so, but it made it great. Uh, these were like the, 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 the four um, specific roles that you had. You had the front end, you had the search, you had distributed cache, and you had the application role. Right? A lot easier than like, oh, where's my business connectivity services going to be running? Oh, where's my Excel services going to be running? Oh, where is this going to be running? Where is that going to be running? Between these four, you basically have all the services and all the features that you need, right? Which is great, which is exactly what you want, right? And um, as such, however, that's the minimum that you're going to have for a farm. So if you were to make these things redundant, uh, you would need to have, uh, for high availability, you would need to have eight servers, right? Um, so this is, this is kind of a setup and all that, um, that you, you would have your web front ends. Uh, how many of you know what distributed cache servers are? How many of you are using distributed cache? Oh, you are. Okay, good. Um, so what distributed cache servers are, that's the old app fabric. Uh, and maybe you guys will remember what the app fabric was. Uh, and um, app fabric uh, basically was uh, providing caching for all the transactions and, uh, you know, before committing them um, to... Uh, uh, to, to the database, and as such, um, you know, it was you know considerably speeding up, uh, you know, the, all the transactions that are going in and out uh, from the front ends, right? So you would have the front ends; they go via distributed cache servers and all that. Um, so for those of you that have actually worked with App Fabric in the past, uh, you'll know in order to establish a quorum, um, it's not enough to just to have two 
you need to have three um, distributed cache servers. And I'll talk about if you do run two, because a lot of people do run two, and you, you'll see in all the Microsoft documentation and stuff, they put up two and all that sort of stuff. The only thing that you need to worry about if you're running two is that um, you need to do a very graceful restart if, when you're doing an update. And you, what you need to understand is that whatever the, 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 the cache part was on the server that you were about to restart, once it goes offline, that thing is not going to get replicated to the other one. For that, you need three servers, right? So that, that will be offline until it actually comes back on, and that's something to consider. Um, okay, so, um, uh, yeah, you have the application servers, and then you have the search service. Search service, as you know, uh, is fairly important because of the uh, enterprise search capabilities of SharePoint since uh, Microsoft purchased um, uh, Fast Search from Norway, which is an amazing product. Uh, and that uh, gave them uh, amazing search capabilities and all these great things that they've built in Office 365, like Delve and so on. Um, okay, so same, same goes for the SQL Server and domain controllers in this particular case. Uh, yeah, and you say it supports no downtime patching. Yeah, so as such, the mineral also makes sure that, you know, that uh, uh, it's aware of the, when you're patching it, when you're bringing it down, and, you know, uh, how, kind of how to route the traffic, uh, the transactions for specific servers. Um, another thing that is very common um, is adding the Office Online Server. Um, Office Online Server, as you know, this is what the capability uh, uh, that it offers to you to actually run Office applications uh, in the server. Um, the, the, the licensing for, uh, rather, in the web pages of SharePoint. Um, so you are able to do um, a collaboration and stuff, you know, like, like Google Docs, right? You can, you can have multiple people, they have multi-conflict engine and you can all uh, work on the, um, on the Word document or Excel together at the same time and it will maintain everybody's, you know, everybody's changes at the same time and all that great stuff um, that you might want to use. Um, um, however, Important thing to understand with the Office Online Server, Office Online Server is a, is a separate SharePoint farm on its own. So, <laughs> and it's configured as an additional farm to, uh, to the farm that you're already running. So for those of you that have been running it before, you'll know that particular fact. Um, uh, Office Online Server can be also load balanced, which is great. And um, you, know, you, could, uh, you, you could actually use uh, uh, you know, two of them to, for the actual um, uh, availability. That's not usually considered, you know, editing Office documents in a web page is not considered like an RPO and RTO type thing. Nobody cares about it because it's not, you know, it's not really doing anything with the data and people can generally live without it if it goes offline, right? So uh, a lot of the times people don't really uh, provide redundancy for that, but you can, right? It's really up to you. You guys can figure it. Uh, yeah, and then other things is, uh, with the um, uh, 2013 workflow platform, um, uh, um, is using the workflow manager server, and then you can actually add that. It's still, even in 2016, it's still called a 2013 workflow platform because it was first introduced in 2013. Um, and um, you, can, you can then use those, and those, you, know, you can make those redundant if necessary uh, to provide the workflow functionality that you've been using or migrated over from the previous version including any new ones that you um, tend to build or want to build. Uh, feature pack. So what's great about the feature pack one? Have you, anybody running feature pack one? Nobody? 
So the feature pack one um, allows um, it, it allows you for the mineral to combine multiple roles in the same server. So uh, it combines the front end with distributed cache and it combines application with search. And, uh, and that's great because now you can actually run smaller farm. Before you, you, in order to run a fully highly available farm, you have to have eight servers. Now you can have four servers. Or if you don't want highly available, you can have two versus four, right? Um, and that's, uh, uh, that's a pretty amazing thing because it allows you to build out smaller environments, smaller test environments and all this sort of stuff without, you know, prerequisite, uh, must use of so many servers and all that. Um, so, um, before I, I'll go, yeah, before I go over there, one of the things that I wanted to mention is, um, and uh, what's really important is using the self-healing uh, um, architecture and, um, and using, you, making ad, taking advantage of our services we've got to offer. So um, I mentioned already that we have um, uh, hosted um, um, a man, fully managed Microsoft AD uh, through AWS directory services. Um, I mentioned already AWS CLB that helps you in this particular sense. But also there's, uh, uh, you can use the autoscaler uh, with the ELB specifically. Uh, it's kind of tricky, and I'll tell you why. Couple of things. Um, you can only scale up to as many, as much licensing as you have, right? Because now the licensing is all per server stuff, right? So that's one thing to consider. You can't just burst out as much as you want. Second of all, you have to understand you know, that traditionally when you are going and uh, um, deploying um, um, servers in, 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 through launch configuration, and for those of you that are not familiar with Autoscaler and the launch configuration, I urge you to, to look that up. That's kind of a basics from an AWS side of things. But launch configuration would use our AMI, and then it would, you know, it would bootstrap it, and then it would go ahead and bring up the server. So as you understand, a lot of things need to happen to it. It needs to be added to the domain. The services need to be installed, deployed, and all this sort of stuff. Of course, a lot of this stuff can be pre-done. You can pre-create these things and create a custom AMI to do so. You can even, um, and that will require, of course, a lot less automation. It will take a lot less time to bring it back up. Um, you can go one forward because, hey, what you have, you already have all the licensing for all the servers. You can bring about the biggest farm you can possibly build, right? And with, with, with all the additional redundancy. And then, because you don't need all that capacity, you can just shut down things you don't need. So you can just stop them and configure in the actual autoscaler to bring them back up when necessary. Because you've stopped them, you're not paying for them anymore, right? But they're there and you can self-heal and you can, you can bring them back up. If any issue happens, if any, um, uh, if, if they go down for whatever reason or anything like that, you can, they, the autoscaler, you know, depending on the health rule, will actually, you know, can bring it back up or add additional capacity whenever you need it, uh, fairly quickly. So, uh, so that's one thing to, another thing to consider. So I told you about all these things. I told you about, you know, um, uh, all these architectures, all these DR scenarios and all that. But one thing that I was telling you about as well, specifically if you remember on, on the backup and restore scenarios with DR and all that is the automated way of creating SharePoint architecture in the sense. So if you go to uh, the quick start, once again, uh, go ahead and search AWS quick start and you will get uh, all different ones, including the SharePoint 2016. Um, it will create, uh, it, it basically once you click the button, um, it will, uh, it will uh, create this full infrastructure. It's based on um, uh, CloudFormation. CloudFormation is our infrastructure as a code. It's basically JSON. Um, 
that uh, you have several templates and all this sort of stuff. Like all these production stuff is already pre-created for you. You can just go ahead and change it and adjust it. Um, why is it JSON? Because uh, you can either create it yourself. You can create it in Visual Studio. We have for uh, Visual Studio SDK for AWS. We actually have templates for creation of um, um, AW, uh, of uh, CloudFormation templates. And um, you can then go ahead and code this out. Or, you, or there's a lot of things like uh, uh, programmatic tools and other um, CDCR platforms that actually can uh, go ahead and uh, uh, create um, uh, CloudFormation for you. Um, you know, things like Troposphere, um, uh, like Terraformer and so on. Um, those are free tools. You, you know, you can specifically Troposphere. It's like a GitHub project. You can check it out. Uh, for those of you that are Python developers, if, if you happen to be there. Um, and uh, what's great about it is that it can, you can create stacks because by default when you run a CloudFormation, uh, if something happens or if one of your services did not start or one of your you know, parts of your infrastructure was not configured properly during the course of it, um, first of all, that's highly unlikely, but it, it can happen uh, with respect to how you're configuring stuff because for most part, you just, it's an explicit schema-based language. You just tell them what it needs to do and our service figures out what needs to be deployed in what order, right? So you don't have to worry about that. The thing comes into when, you, when they actually uh, uh, installing services and adding themselves to a domain and all this sort of stuff where, you know, where things can happen. And uh, that's something to worry about. In those cases, sometimes uh, you know, the, the, uh, it, the actual um, CloudFormation script can roll back and it will start deleting everything that it created. That it does by default. You can uncheck that so it doesn't do that for you, but uh, should you check that and like it, you can also split it up into multiple different uh, stacks, and those are different scripts, and have a master script that executes these stacks one by one. That way, it won't roll back. You can create, in this case, AD, SQL stack, and then SharePoint stack last. And it won't like go roll back the SQL stack and, and AD because it's, you know, you already did it. And, and then any changes that you do subsequently, um, you can update. So what does it look like exactly all this great stuff that I'm telling you, is it as simple as I'm telling you? Well, I think so. Um, first thing that you need, if you haven't done this already, you need your um, uh, AWS account. You then would go to the quick start, you would press a button, it will actually go ahead and launch directly. Once you logged into the account, it will launch it into CloudFormation. Then uh, you would be asked all these parameters to put in. So actually CloudFormation auto-creates a form right, based on the parameters that you've defined. So those parameters in this case are uh, VPC, cider range, private subnet, and all that. But it's not just that. It's uh, an EC2 configuration. What you don't see at the bottom is also um, everything about, like, um, uh, service accounts for SharePoint, uh, service accounts for SQL, um, and, and so on and so forth. Like, what, um, uh, what do you want to use for it? Uh, what type of um, 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 what type of instances you want to use and so on, right? Um, and then all you have to do after that is just configure availability group. Um, you have to, have to define, you have to select the actual databases to do that, and that's done. Uh, the template takes about three hours to complete, and I dare any other platform to show me if they can do that faster than us. Because <laughs> we've done a lot of benchmarks internally and with our customers, and I can guarantee you. Uh, and the default template will cost around $12 per hour. Uh, for those of you that probably can get some credits and stuff like that from us, 
um, you know, um, you, you, that, that will help you plan out or if you're going to be using it yourself for whatever, for development or, or, or POC purposes or anything like that, um, that's kind of a guideline just to understand what is it, uh, what is it going to take. Um, so best practices. Uh, one thing to, um, uh, to, um, to, to take note of, uh, security groups. Um, so security groups is effectively a, um, they, they're basically uh, proxy rules that you put on, and they, they put on the instance level. Um, you, can, uh, you can associate multiple instances with security groups. Um, the resistance to this uh, and understanding of security groups is important, whether you're working with customers yourself if you're a partner, or whether you, whether you work um, at, uh, uh, you know, with a particular customer. Um, it's difficult for a lot of people to understand the virtualized, virtualized concepts uh, and, you know, versus, um, uh, versus tin concepts, as I call them, or, or um, actual hardware concepts of, um, of running a network. And uh, what's really important to understand is that, um, you know, you don't have, like, uh, you know, some, something sitting on the VPC or sitting on the subnet. Um, this is kind of your first line of defense, uh, first layer of defense, so to speak, and uh, you apply it individually. Uh, it's basically like a proxy that you would apply individually to all the instances. Um, uh, there's different ways and different securities that we create normally, um, you know, for uh, patents used for uh, Microsoft uh, deployment specifically. Um, you, um, we have um, uh, like domain uh, security group that is kind of applied to all and then all the others kind of can inherit and draw from that security group and then release any other, you know, ports that they need to release, let's say, for uh, services to talk between each other and so on and just, you know, disallow any other uh, um, specific traffic just in case. Uh, network ACLs, um, ACLs basically have the same, except they have allow and deny rules versus only allow rules that you have with security groups. These sit on uh, subnet level. And those are, those are basically that you, something that you use uh, to say uh, when you're kind of limiting off the traffic to say, no matter what changes I do to security groups between instances on how they talk to each other, I don't ever want to let something like this come in, right? Or I want to explicitly allow something like this. So explicit deny will always uh, um, uh, overrule and allow, right? So that's one, one, one thing to consider. And this is a, this is a good example of that. Um, when it comes to um, uh, SQL Server, specifically, make sure that you're running the right um, ME and that you're running the right EBS volume types. Um, we have run, uh, for a lot of our customers, uh, um, uh, a lot of application and database uh, uh, scenarios and like-to-like -like with, uh, with our uh, uh, you know, competitive platforms, so to speak, right? Uh, and uh, we more than doubled uh, in performance when it comes to that. Um, uh, our um, competitive platforms cannot, for example, guarantee uh, uh, IOPS. So, uh, you know, something like our provision IOPS SSD can actually guarantee exactly consistent uh, amount of IOPS that is being used. Um, the, uh, we usually use the memory optimized, which are, which are our instances. So when you look at those, you can use that uh, for kind of more kind of general purpose stuff. There's M instances, specifically M4 class instances. Um, so that's really important to, to check. Um, one thing, another thing to check is you need to see how many um, uh, ENIs or elastic, you know, uh, network interfaces uh, is allowed per each instance because when you're creating clusters, 
specifically, you want to make sure that you have, um, uh, you know, a sufficient number of um, or NICs uh, for your specific instances. Um, and then there's also a more than sufficient uh, uh, general purpose SSD uh, that kind of, uh, uh, you know, gives, does not specific, it gives you up to certain amount of IOPS, uh, and those can accumulate if you don't get to use them, right? Um, and uh, I think they set up for the certain amount of IOPS per uh, gigabyte uh, that can burst up to 3,000 IOPS. Um, so that's very important to note. Usually we use the M class stuff for the actual application and web front-end servers. So M4, 4X large, for example, and that's, that's pretty sufficient fun, and that's a good comparable one. I, we ran application scenarios, and I, I'm telling you, you will be impressed by the performance. Performance is not just comparable to running it on-premise, but it's better for in most case scenarios when we migrated our customers over to AWS. So we don't see running and running workloads in AWS as like a you know, second-class citizen. We see this where you should be running it as your primary uh, uh, production environment for your SharePoint, right? Very strongly recommend that, unlike others do for, for other platforms. Um, so um, this is um, always an availability group set up, uh, you know, with some details with the, you know, AG listener and all that. This is, a, this is a very typical setup. Tomorrow I'll show you how, you know, the failover happens between regions and all that with kind of asynchronous scenario. That's also a good way to simulate how it would happen if you were doing a failover um, and using um, AWS as a DR site. Uh, which is this type of scenario. I already showed you that. I already showed you how the VPN, and we talked about the setting up VPN between two regions or between your data center and, uh, uh, or your colo and, and uh, AWS specifically. Uh, I will go briefly through the migration stuff. Um, so um, there are, you know, the, the migration strategy, I think um, um, the, 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 the good chunk of it um, is based on the DR scenarios that we've put together. Those are, that's something that we do um, um, recommend. Uh, things like blue-green deployments, uh, for those of you that are aware or perhaps not aware, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that involves effectively bringing up another environment and then just, uh, you know, cutting over uh, to that one. Uh, that's fairly cheap and possible to do in AWS because you can just temporarily rent those resources from us and then have that brought up and then kill the environment that you don't need. Um, and, um, um, you know, some of the things to consider, I mean, it's saying that the DB attach method and, the, and checking the compatibility uh, aspects before you kind of migrate from one version to another, you, you know very well you can't skip versions and you need to be aware of any compatibility issues for any uh, legacy features that you're bringing over from already migrated uh, uh, SharePoint farms. Uh, I will be around. Um, I can take offline questions specifically for migration, that's a whole session on its own. So I'm not going to dwell too much on that. Um, make sure you're using EC2 config to, um, you can actually stream all your logs, IS logs, Perfmon logs, all the application system logs. Um, you can uh, stream it uh, to CloudWatch, which already monitors the CPU and, um, uh, and, uh, and disk use and IOPS usage and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then, together with that, you can directly monitor using CloudWatch logs. Um, and those can also be um, uh, shot through um, uh, Amazon Kinesis. Kinesis is, a, is, is a, a service that allows 
fast real-time processing of any type of data, including log. We commonly use it for log data, and that can send it to your log system that you may be using, or you, or you can just send it to an ELK stack or to Elasticsearch with Kibana uh, on our side that we got to offer, and then you can kind of analyze that stuff. And now we also have, uh, we support queries and analytics on uh, on um, uh, Kinesis uh, stream itself, and then you can kind of run those as, um, as it's coming through. Uh, another thing that, that you can do, you can set up alarms on it. You can automate uh, any action that needs to be done. Um, uh, you can automate a lot of simple actions like restarting servers and all this sort of stuff, or stopping servers or terminating instances, but you can also uh, use AWS Lambda, which is your um, uh, stateless kind of um, uh, serverless service uh, to automate any other action um, uh, you know, further, like, I don't know, inform you to your... Um, uh, to, to a specific chat application as a, as a bot to tell you what it is, and you can kind of set like send uh, commands from Slack to back to your farm and instruct it to do some specific administration task. Um, so that's that. There's a lot more to that. I encourage you to come over and talk to me about it. Uh, besides the notification, like I said, we yeah. Uh, just to note one more time, the alarms can send you via SNS. I can start a workflow, can send you an email, or can, they can send you an actual SMS to your phone and inform you about specific events that you wanted to subscribe to for your, uh, for your SharePoint farm. That's it. Thank you very much.